The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show just as soon as it comes back with the uh, already long-awaited season two. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Killy Frank. Hi. Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And Nick Wicks. Hey, everyone. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps, but if you want to get access to special bonus episodes, join us at the $5 Tarvalon tier, and you'll get those right away. Oh, breathless today. I should not, I keep uh, exercising right before starting, which is not the best idea for breath control. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. For instance, uh, someone named Kaylee uh, simply says, love the show, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Kaylee, and for the five-star review. Today we are re- uh, continuing book three of the series, The Dragon Reborn, chapters 31 to 35. Uh, so what happens in these chapters? We are moving out from the tower. Generally speaking, uh, Matt makes his escape from Tarvalin and in the process meets up with their dear old friend, Tom Marilyn, uh, at who is extremely uh, drunk and depressed and potentially up in the move for suicidal sounding adventures uh, after after the death of his lover Dina in the last book uh, which was um, sort of a result of him getting mixed up with with Rand and with everything that was going down in Carrienne at the time it does not take much convincing for Matt to get him to go to Camelin with him sort of as a lifeline he's offering to Tom and also you know because like Tom like his one of his only uh, reliable friends in the world at this point Tom is up for the adventure and uh, it seems like it's going to be a good opportunity, even if he doesn't really believe uh, everything that's going on, as Matt reports it. They grab the first ship out in the middle of the night, um, and there's like a whole, uh, like, a, like a bargaining scene sort of escalating and revealing the things that are going on politically. Tom is increasingly incredulous. Dark friends attack the boat, uh, and Matt, for the most part, fights them off, as, as does Tom saving Matt's life at the end of it. We get a brief interlude of Rand uh, at his campfire, terrified of everything, afraid to dream, and constantly visited by these shadowy figures from his life. And that's pretty much it for him for now, uh, because then we go to Perrin on on the chase for Rand with Moraine, uh, Lan, and Loyal. They arrive in a town where, uh, like, like on a long string of very strange town encounters, like that they're going through, where things that are either really weirdly lucky or catastrophically awful have been happening to each of the towns. Taveran influence, it seems, with the trail of of uh, of life and destruction that Rand has left in his wake. In this town, Perrin finds an, an Aiel who is caged up, and there's like this uh, this local Lord Orban who is like loudly proclaiming that they they fought and killed these these 20, uh, 20 Aiel. Turns out it was um, a, a town lynch mob basically found two Aiel who were just traveling through the area and they killed the one and put the other up in a cage to be sort of pelted and humiliated by, uh, by the kids around town and then presumably to be executed. Perrin sets him free and gets attacked in the process, kills a lot of White Cloaks. Again, really, uh, Perrin's reputation meter with the White Cloak faction just plummeting down well below the zero line. So they have to flee town again, just like old times. Perrin noticed um, a young woman or a girl right around his age uh, who has been watching him. He thinks she might be a dark friend at first, but Moraine reminds him, Perrin, you're a good-looking guy. Not everything is about the... Uh, not everything is about the Dark Lord's plans. Uh, she winds up following them when they flee and get out onto a boat. 
Uh, they learn a lot of things that are going on in the world, like that Masima is to, is proclaiming the dragon and Gale Don and is like starting cults of, of Rand all over the place. And uh, yeah, they flee down river. Uh, Fael sneaks aboard. I'm calling her Fael. That's not her real name. Uh, she she first gives the name Mandarb, uh, which uh, Perrin laughs because that's the name of Lan's horse. Uh, I forget what it means. It's like some noble term in, in the old tongue. And then she... She decides to adopt the name, her hunter name, Fayil, which means falcon, which relates to Min's vision, which has been coming true throughout this chapter, I think, with the Aiel in a cage and, and a falcon coming to, uh, coming to uh, perch on Perrin's shoulder. So, uh, let's see. This week, Keely, what, do you want to get us going with your, with your highlights here? What stuck out to you in these chapters? Yeah, so um, happy that Tom is back, finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and that I really enjoyed Perrin actually like taking charge a little bit and yeah. making a decision and doing something. Um, I'm still kind of conflicted on how I feel about his character, but I, I do like that he is kind of asserting, you know, himself where he can. So deciding yes. that he's going to let the Aielman down um, and then like staying to fight. He didn't have to stay to fight, mm-hmm. uh, but he did. And like, I know that he is still very much, at least it feels like he's still very much battling with being someone that, you know, is is from a kind of typical society, I guess, where Mm -hmm. violence is just something that happens and sometimes you have to do it. But then also with like the knowledge of the tinkers, um, because there was at least like one moment where he was like, I think he like automatically hooked his axe to his belt or something. And it was like, oh, my God, like I didn't even realize I did that kind of instead of his hammer. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do, I mean, I kind of enjoyed that whole thing. Plus, like, fuck the White Cloak. So anytime we get <laughs> scenes of them getting murdered is totally fine. Um, and then I'm, I'm like, really, really hoping that he will tell them that this girl is following. Because, like, a fucking mm. course the one time that Moraine is like, you know, not everything's about the Dark Lord or whatever. It's like, no, it is, but it fucking is every fucking time. <laughs> So I hope that like that will that he'll speak up about that. And then also like I hope that they talk about it more and I really want to read Loyal's book that he's writing because yes. it's like documenting <laughs> his adventures. So, like I really, really want to read that. Yeah, getting his perspective would be a lovely on all these events. That was a cute thing. Oh yeah. I, I had a very similar reaction with Perrin, especially I made a note and I'm trying to I can't remember which exact moment it was probably around the IO cage moment, but then a couple times before I'm like, oh my God, he's taking initiative. He's making decisions. He's starting to feel like a, a main character drive, driving the plot here, which, which is like refreshing and also highlighting how little he got to do in the first book and, and not much more in the second, but really does feel like finally starting to feel like there's a reason that we would have him as a protagonist here and someone who is making decisions. And he, he has he, the, the process he goes through mentally of the, I don't like, you know, just like, his values come into play here, just like the strong reaction against someone being caged and someone being held there, uh, which has, you know, resonance with the earlier wolf brother who was far gone that he saw in the cage, but also just seems to be part of this moral core that he has from the two rivers and in a lot of ways, the most sensitive of at least of the three two rivers boys. And he has this whole inner monologue thing of, you know, if you do a thing, do it right. I started this. I'm finishing <laughs> it. I'm finishing it. That's it. This is this is. This is like, you know, like, and the violence really pains him here. It's like actively, um, actively excruciating for him to be, and he, like, he wants to cry as, 
as he is uh, cutting one of the white cloaks throat out. He hates it. He hates it all. He's just disgusted by himself and the violence, um, but he doesn't want to die. And he's decided to do this. And he doesn't want this other man to die or be tortured and left there. And that's the way it is. And he's, he's making these values. And set, uh, it's nice to get past that. Yeah, just being in his own head for God knows how long and, and moving um, something here, moving something in himself, moving something in the plot. Uh, I'm curious to see where that takes us. Uh, what about you, Dan? What were your highlights in these? Yeah, that whole scene with the Aiel and him freeing him was a highlight. I liked like the little flourishes. In addition to what you're saying about the value choices and actually making decisions, I liked a little bit of humor or his personality coming out with the way he his thought process during that sequence, like the the cage and the quality of the cage and just the blacksmith mm-hmm. side of him coming out. Like he's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. if you're going to make it like, he's like, I don't <laughs> no. like the concept of a cage, but if you're going to make anything out of like metal or like do a yeah. good job. So that little bit of like criticism there was like a clever, like flavor text. Nor I feel like sometimes, especially the first book is very robotic. All the children kind of blended together. Not much of a unique personality. No, to your point, he's, he has a value system. He's different than random Matt. I think overall, just the highlights for me for this set of chapters is both Perrin and Matt making executive executive decisions, mm-hmm. uh, leading, not following, stepping up and kind of taking action and having the quote unquote like adults, like the other people in the room kind of taking more of a backseat and them driving. So it's like a switch in roles and they're getting more autonomy and authority. Mm-hmm. Matt doing the same thing with like Tom sleeping and who knows what would have happened if Matt hadn't <laughs> not been sleeping and actually got it up and protected them. I can't tell if Tom was like fake sleeping or just like letting Matt take over. It seems a little, mm-hmm. usually that's Tom's approach is like, he's still aware, but I can't tell if it was like, he's still getting over the depression and alcohol and he was pretty incapacitated at the moment. Mm-hmm. Cause it, I, I have a hard time believing he would just let Matt have to deal with those assassins up front. No, so I, 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 I feeling as they woke cold. up. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think he was just like leaving it to Matt. So um, that was neat to see Matt having more agency as well. And them just maturing and starting to like step up and do things and actually like save their own asses versus being like super dumb and falling into like traps and just making yeah, really yeah. unwise decisions and really stupid. Like I feel like in conversations, they also used to make like really dumb choices with how they talked to folks and would mm. spill too much information. They wouldn't actually know how to properly convey things without giving away all the details. And now they, they're a little smarter with their conversations and refraining yeah. from just spilling the beans on everything right away. And and for once, what is Perrin's instinct when he thinks that there is a suspicious character in the in below? He goes and tells Moraine. It's like a, a minor miracle yeah. has, occur- has occurred here. Uh, we we do have to get this like awkward moment of him like like Moraine is in her bathrobe and and he's um, you know it's strange to him because he thinks of her <laughs> her as a uh, as a motherly figure to see her as a beautiful woman so you know we still get like hormonal teenage shenanigans in uh, in the course of these but it's interesting like, do yeah, I like that... older women <laughs> <laughs> old enough to be my mother damn it um, yeah it's interesting to see the other the younger characters stepping up in some ways. And uh, Moraine is maybe more caught off guard here than I think we've ever seen her. She seems distracted. She didn't recognize Masima right away. It was like Lan had to remind her of that. Like, uh, and I don't know if like um, we have so little insight into her perspective. This book, I don't really have much more than the sense that she is just overwhelmed with the larger picture or what's going on with Rand and is focusing all her energies. But I do get the sense that she is 
much more out of her element than she was when she had like the 100% plan, like, you know, here's the prophecies, here's what we're doing. I'm getting these kids to Tarvalon, and then, you know, Swan and I will, will uh, direct the dragon from there. And things have just gone far off the rails from that plan that they that had set in motion for like 30, 40 years, whatever it was, since they were novices or accepted and first heard that prophecy. And uh, I, I am still, I am still looking forward to when we get back to her perspective again. But it is interesting to see how that is resulting in the other characters taking these other roles here. Uh, what about you, Nick? What were your big takeaways or highlights from these chapters? Um, I so I liked uh, so there was a few really interesting parts here. Uh, again, being like from from the perspective of rereading. Um, so one, I mean, which is fresh on my mind because I just finished reading a little while ago, was um, the introduction of Fayil. Um, I think that's how you pronounce, you know, her name, uh, which you know is huge, huge in the in the book and the story. And I like how Perrin sort of like stumbles over <laughs> over her being introduced in the end, thinking back to to Min's vision, um, mm -hmm. which uh, you know I think is uh, a fun fun little thing. Uh, and then the other one, um, I think was, well, I'm trying to find my notes, was Perrin, oh, uh, that was it, uh, Perrin and, um, uh, Gaul, so the, yeah. uh, the Aielman jump it, uh, coming in here, there's just a lot of really, um, like, you know, uh, spoilers aside, just characters here who, who show up later in the books, um, which are, are pretty, pretty cool to be learning about and seeing how they, how they first, uh, were introduced again. Um, also, I think the other oh, yeah the other thing that popped out at me was the was the mat uh, of course. So I I think I didn't I didn't realize um, until you know the second read through just how how much of like Matt's character comes out this early. Like I in my mind the first <laughs> few books were always just like really annoyed at Matt and like you know bothered by his character, which um, I think has been so, largely true so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so I I mean I don't think I really liked Matt until books like not eight or nine or ten or something like that. And I'm now that I'm rereading it, I'm seeing a lot of his like uh you know, big character traits from later in the series come out a lot earlier and I can appreciate them a lot more now and see like the humor and the the fun in them. Um so I think that's a cool part of, of getting to reread this set of chapters. I thought those were uh we, we've, I think we've, most of us have praised Jordan's action scenes a lot over time, but I thought these were some exceptionally good fight scenes that occur here between the more vague one with Perrin and, and Gull and the White Cloaks, where it's impressionistic because we're mostly in Perrin's head for that and, and feel like feeling his psychology and reactions to them. And then for Matt, a very physical, very like, um, I thought quick, evocative way of presenting this very lethal set of kills he makes on these attempted assassinations on the boat where it wasn't like, um, there, you know, there wasn't anything like necessarily like, oh, that's an incredibly good line of prose. But I had, I felt like I had a very clear picture of the boat and of what Matt was doing and it was dynamic and, uh, and really kept me in the flow of that action and the danger of it the whole way through. And then up until the moment of, of Tom arriving in the nick of time out of bed and throwing the daggers, th those were, those were big highlights for me on the action side and on the Fail arriving side. Uh, I don't know if we want to, um, I guess she's like the very, we really don't get her to the very last chapter of the conversation with her out of this bunch, but, um, I did not remember how funny Fayil was. I laughed aloud at the I assume you do this regularly line where <laughs> where she talks talks about watching Perrin and, and the uh, the idol in the cage and the 
the white clothes, um, what, what is it? Uh, countrymen, by the first look of you, only you free a caged men, hold a long talk with him, and then help him chop a dozen white cloaks into sausage. I assume you do this regularly, and then just goes on. And, and uh, this I, I had a lot of fun with this conversation here. Both the combination of her, she's got this, she's, she's very young, uh, is the sense we get granted, so is, so is Perrin. They're, they seem to be around the same, same age. She has this sense of confidence uh, and, and capability and competence, while also a little bit of hubris of, you know, like she, she's not been out in the world that long and she's not like snuck into the hunt of the horn that long, but she has a plan. It's pretty well thought out. She has good instincts. Uh, but then there's also like a, a little bit of the, you know, like the, 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 the humor in the hubris on top of it. And I'm just, uh, we'll see, we'll see where things go, but I, I like this dynamic between them in the first little bit here. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that in memory. Like, uh, like, and I think as a kid, I liked, I liked ILS for whatever reason among, upon meeting her. Um, I don't know why, uh, but I like, but I like her right away in, in this passage here. I didn't know. Do we, do we have thoughts on, um, the new characters introduced here? I guess the uh, well, it's, we got we got Lord Orban, Gull, and Fayil, and yet another shady innkeeper whose name doesn't seem important to remember to me. <laughs> yeah, I thought I did. I, I did like that exchange and the humor. I mean, it had the cliche, almost like Disney, like "You're a girl. How are you, a hunter?" And oh, I was yeah, like, no. "My God, we get obligatory." It's hard to like. I know this book series was written in the '90s, but it's just like God, I'm so like wa watching movies and TV shows now from like the past. It's like can't fathom that a woman would be able to hold a knife or something and be able to like fight or something. It's just like, it's blowing his mind there. And just, I don't know. I, it's hard to remember that now in like 2022, just like the, that interaction or mindset. And I, mm -hmm. I don't know. That always taints those kind of discourses. And that happens a lot in the series. Everything is about like the binary genders that like Jordan writes yep. from, you know, even though he tries to empower women, everything he still kind of leans into that and is always constantly reminding people of their like sexuality um you know, like his determination on it. but yeah it was a good discourse i do like the trope i think with the the new character that you know the trope of like powerful potentially villainous character who is incapacitated or mm -hmm. like locked up and then the hero saving them and then this person becomes like a mutual ally for a little bit and there's like gained respect that trope is like really fun for yeah. me so I like, I like that dynamic a lot with her he literally delivers a dune line too in case we were at all ambiguous at this point about the fact that the Aiel are Fremen. Uh, what, what, what does he say? Um, uh, he introduces himself, I'm Gol of the Imran Sept of the Sharad Aiel Wetlander. I am Shaheen Matal, a stone dog. My water is yours. And which is just like the most, uh, the most Fremen-ass, dune-ass thing you can say. And, and they even have a cool conversation about that perspective on water and the, the disbelief in the wealth and terror of the amount of water that exists in, in the wetlands, as he calls them. The, uh, the 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 cage scene here too. I remember when we were uh, doing the the podcast series for the first season of the show. I remember talking about this this scene because we I was comparing it to like the in this in the TV series they have a scene where they have a dead yeah. uh, Aiel in there uh, in a cage like outside an inn in a town mm -hmm. that reminded me a lot of this scene. Um, uh, and I was one, I remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if they were using this scene as like inspiration for that, which means that oh, Gaul, sure. like, is it going to be, uh, is it going to be showing up in the series or, um, <laughs> or like whether the, the whole scene was just, yeah. It wouldn't be the first time they've killed a named, a named character who shows up in later books, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you even get to I'm still crying about Uno, the one-eyed, uh, Shinaran being killed in like the third episode or whatever. <laughs> 
That, that's definitely the reflection scene. I feel like, yeah, they echoed this one. And it was interesting that they made it Matt and the meeting with Tom and the giving a burial instead. Because I, I felt like that that was the best scene in that episode, I thought, and had a, had a good resonance there, despite which is different from kind of the resonance of this one. But real, you could see the same DNA and like the different way it plays out with the character of Matt at that point and Tom there versus Perrin on his own and in a hostile kind of environment. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. But if we're going back, uh, we didn't really talk about the first couple chapters much of, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that I have much to say about the ta the tavern scene, uh, besides the like, um, annoying and frequently gross drunken flirtations slash, uh, <laughs> uh like grabbing of all the women working here that go on. It's not, it's not a brothel, but you almost get the sense that that's what the the patrons here are um, are, are are acting like. Just this like re real, real, real entitled and grabby environment. That's not at all a pleasant uh, hole that Tom is hanging out in. Except that he, Tom is beloved here. This scene, I think, guess this is one of his old haunts before, um, like in previous times, he's been in Intar Intarvalen, um, and a lot of catching up between the two of them and 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 relating the politics of the world. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have I don't have much to say about those first couple chapters that that I haven't already with the boat scenes with with Matt and Tom, and we sort of get a redux of the very uh, and there's the characters comment how these chapters sort of echo the events of Eye of the World and are sort of like yeah. what they were doing for long parts of the Eye of the World, both parents group and Matt's, because we get the Tom and and Matt running for like jumping on a ship that was going away from Trollocs in the first book, and then the bargaining scene there, except it's Matt who takes control this time around and like is like making Tom's eyes go wider and wider throughout the scene with the inordinate, like impossible amount of wealth that he gambled for tonight. So that's what you were saying, Dan, about the um, the student sort of, uh, and the kids sort of growing up and, and, and taking responsibilities in this one of where they were just dragged along throughout the first book and mostly were there to be dragged along and to complain about it by and large and are now actually doing things. But can we talk about how they're not rewarded for finally being smart and conveying information? Because it... It was awesome to see that, but I'm also like, there's an interesting transition in kind of talking about the transition from adolescence to adulthood and recognizing that everyone doesn't have their shit together mm -hmm. and that you're all in the same boat there. But for all the occasions where they didn't actually convey information to Marine or Land yeah. or Tom, we were always like kind of groaning and being like, why didn't you convey that? But then this, this set of chapters, they do convey multiple times. They conveyed a marine, and her response is, "Oh, you could just be attractive. It's just like a person flirting with you, or like kind of yeah. just having an eye on you." And then with Tom, Matt does—he's super honest and tells him exactly what's going on. He's like, "Ho, ho, ho! I guess you're not going to tell me what's going on." It's like, "Oh, I yeah, guess yeah. What, good point." I guess this is what they get for being honest for once. Like people don't believe them, <laughs> which is ridiculous considering what they've already gone through. So you get that response where you get Moraine just brushing him off with a really like, I don't know, it's plausible, but it's also just seems like it's kind of downplaying his observations instead of taking them seriously. So yeah, they're not giving us a lot of reasons to actually convey back truth or give them the information. And now they're just like, they're rightfully just taking ownership and doing things on their own without like Moraine and Tom are not being as helpful mm -hmm. as they appeared to be in the first few books. I mean, it's kind of... It's fucking annoying, I'd say for sure, because you like just just text each other, goddammit, and none of this would happen. But I I kind of do appreciate that when they are finally doing what you know they were asking them for, mm -hmm. they're not getting that like perfect response that we we're hoping for, which kind of I think it's like it's more realistic. It shows how kind of 
fallible the the um like adults you know quote adults are in this situation that it's like you know you you're asking for something you're demanding something but when i'm trying to give it to you you're not accepting it and it's like mm-hmm. i feel like that's a much more realistic which i mean i i fault jordan a lot for <laughs> for a lot of the shit that you know isn't realistic and then this is kind of more realistic at least from my experience and yeah. it's just kind of like well i don't want that like i want <laughs> you know, i want this to be where the adults are listening to the children yeah, yeah. and like you know that shit so I mean, I I can definitely appreciate it. It shows that, like, they're not perfect. And so the kids are going to have to take some kind of role Mm -hmm. and control of their own lives. But I don't know. For Tom, I can... I can kind of get it, uh, I guess, because essentially what is what the one thing he doesn't believe is that, um, well, okay, it's one one thing that that makes me really annoyed with him. And the other that I can kind of get the one I can kind of get is that he doesn't believe that Matt has the superpower <laughs> or because Matt doesn't even frame it that way himself. Like Matt doesn't really understand what's going on. But so he watches Matt roll these di- roll these five dice and repeatedly get five ones like oodles of times in a row just over and over and over again obviously weighted dice except they're not weighted dice and and you know matt tries matt matt's like no no like i i'm i i these these aren't weighted dice i won one of the money and he's like uh-huh okay you know uh, <laughs> i can see why we're leaving in the middle of the night after you went to all these bars <laughs> and so like, you're gonna tell me where you got the these this like fortunes worth of money and and matt just being like oh i want it all to want it all tonight at the bars and i can understand that that Incredulous. Pat is just throwing around like more, like more gold than could buy like the entire two rivers and surrounding region, probably in the course of this night. This this thing that's going on with his luck and supernatural that's awareness that's happening. But I don't know why why Tom has the reaction he does about Nynaeve and Elaine and not believing that uh, Matt is on a mission for the daughter heir of Andor to go to Camelon and deliver. A letter to Morghese, which incidentally Matt thinks is actually cover for something else. He also doesn't buy what we didn't buy. Like, why are why would they have Matt do this? That he even he verbalizes the thing that I think Keely, you said, Dan, you might have said too. The what? Why don't they just send a warder with it? Like, there, there's a lot of options for sending uh, somebody from uh, the tower, but um, but that that one I just don't know what his what his deal is. Like, he knows that they were sensitive in the power and going off to Tarvalon to become Aes Sedai, and at the end, that Moraine and Aes Sedai had interest in in the Two Rivers kids. Moraine herself, I don't really I don't really know why she is why she's so unconcerned with parent suspicion, other than that she's got all these other things on her mind. At this point, he does ask her if she senses any dark friends around, and she says no, but she does point out that she can only sense ones that are like really far gone in the shadow, like ones who are irredeemably sold over to the dark one to the point where they're basically shadow spawned anyway, Um, and that she can't sense like just, you know, normal, normal, quote unquote, normal people who have decided to throw their lot in. I thought it was funny. uh, I remember in the first chapter to Tom... Uh, just being so open about like his relationship with Morghese. Uh <laughs> like just <laughs> I thought that was like kind of funny, and no one like batted an eye. They were like, "Oh yeah, you used to like have an affair with a queen." Oh yeah, that's great, man. Like, and just everyone's like, "That's par for the course." Uh, you know, totally believable and not weird or or unique <laughs> at all. Yeah, did they think he was too drunk at that moment? It seems <laughs> a little uh, impossible, maybe. but it's also... He, he's, he's a, he's he's a storyteller. Yeah. I don't know if they're just That's going true. along with it or if they just know him well enough to know it's true. Like, it seems like they've known him a very long time and that he's been frequenting this place over the over many years. So maybe they know he was a major political agent in Andor at one point before he became a Gleeman. 
Yeah. yeah. Did it? Like, I know, I know they, I know Jordan preferences prefaces this with um, Loyal commenting on it that like, oh, this is just like book one or whatever, like the adventures. Yeah. But I can't <laughs> say I was excited for another boat scene, another end scene, another like, <laughs> it's just like, he keeps repeating the same environments and the same flows. And I'm really hoping he moves away from that. It's like, I don't want another end scene at this point. We've been to like a billion ends in the last three books. It's like, I don't want to be introduced to another boat scene. I, I know there's like comic book authors who do the same thing, like One Piece. The author has such a dynamic cast and he's constantly taking these pirates to like new islands mm-hmm. and they're constantly meeting the same old person and the young like girl who needs help because like there's bandits on the town. And it's like he's fleshed out an entire world and he keeps repeating those like go to an island, meet a new cast, like a new set of yeah. cast members. And it's like, can you stop resetting and inter- like you have so many to work with. You're constantly taking us to new ends with very similar templates. Like I don't want to be introduced to another captain in another boat scene. Can we like explore different environments already? I will say nothing more than that. I think you are going to like book four then uh, in terms of getting away from established structures and, and tools in, in Jordan's toolbox so far that he keeps going back to. will be nice to get like a little change of pace then in like a new <laughs> environment. Um, he's got plenty of cast members at this point, but just more like change of pace and like the action and settings, I think. Um, did you guys, Keely and Dan, did you guys read anything in these five chapters that you guys weren't um, like sure about or were confused about? But like a couple questions, but I don't know if it was just like me missing stuff, but like, um, so do we know who the people are that are chasing Matt? Is it just because mm. people know that he has money or is that supposed to be something bigger? I don't think we do know. Uh, yeah, I don't either. And I, I, um, I think it's might be, I don't know if it's two different groups or not, because we've got these like humans who are, who are trying to hunt him down and kill him. And then, and then we have the shadow spawn, the, the, the four, the, the former soulless humans uh, coming after. So I don't know if both, if they're all dark friends or wait, was there something about um, tattoos or my man with scars on his face was like the one thing that stuck out. Like they made a point to say that he had scars on his face. And I was like, I don't know who that is if I'm supposed to know. But I thought that meant he was a soulless because they're pretty much like zombies, right? Like dead humans. No. Or humans have given their souls away though. Like I always thought they were like more carcassy. No, they look super normal is the thing. Yeah. That's how they always reference them as like the most normal looking average people you've ever not seen sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I think they do in a later book uh, explain who ends up chasing Matt in this scene. And I, oh, I yeah, don't recall, yeah. but I don't, I don't recall it being like a major discovery for me. So I don't, I, I actually don't even remember. I couldn't tell you who, um, who it was who actually sent them. Because we know a, there's a lot of people who already want yeah. the the Taveran dead now. Um, yep. And I'm trying to think. Oh, and I think the scarred face, I have a vague inkling. It might be maybe might be a dark friend and might be someone we know from. I don't remember if it was the beginning of this book or last book. I think last book with the the dinner party of dark friends arriving to get their missions from the Merdral. And yep. the vision of Balsman shows up and everybody's wearing masks. I can't remember if any of the, if, if any... Because I know those some of those come back in different places, and those are like hints that. Because uh, I remember when rereading that scene, like, oh, some of these people I know who they are, um, but they're so far apart. I think that the that oftentimes they wind up being kind of fodder for for Easter egg uh, hunting on forums and in between waiting for books to come out for people to figure out exactly who all the little players are, even though they're, these are these are obviously just pawns of somebody greater, right? Since they're all getting killed off so quickly here, and then two do escape but it seems like they're gonna die swimming back to shore probably like it's way too far and it's cold water 
And then there's like a body missing, right? Like, isn't someone mm. that Matt killed? Then he goes outside and the body's missing. Oh, maybe. So yeah. So another yeah. one who might have gotten away. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So that, that could be super chapter. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what made me think they were soulless because we've already had several encounters with soulless, and they kind of go missing as soon as they turn away from the bodies. Like the one that they dropped from the ceiling, the one that is after um, Egwene and uh, Nynaeve. They yeah, always like. like- well, the bodies get cleaned up. up. Sherium did that. Yeah, she was the one who. Yeah, but the one her. when Matt drops down, that, that one's missing when they go out of the bar. So I assume it's like the same. Mm. It feels like the same oh. pattern. It's like, oh, the body's gone when we come back right, to look right, for right. it. Like this is happening. Oh yeah, you're right. I yeah. think I think that is occurring in this, but I feel like I feel like it's still not a soulless because they almost. I think every time I remember them to describe them as average, so it must be like a group of people who are, you know, seeing it and yeah. pulling these bodies mm-hmm. away. Oh, also, like, you know, Matt's hearing them coming and everything, and they're, like, whispering in the hall and bootsteps and all that. The soulless don't do that. They don't say a word. They don't make noise. You never hear them coming. You, like, can't sense them coming until they're literally on top of you and about to kill you. So, I I mean, maybe they have one with them, but certainly not the ones that came to the door, including the scarred one. Um, yeah, good he, observation that it wasn't the crew either because they don't wear boots apparently at night or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They go barefoot around the ship. Yeah, fun little details. Yeah, any other final thoughts or, or details that stood out on these chapters? Oh, what did Maureen, was it Maureen or was it someone else, um, mentioned that um, she didn't think Rand had learned to travel yet and travel had yeah. a capital T. Mm-hmm. I didn't even catch that. Wow. Details you don't catch with the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What, what can they do? Put like a slight emphasis on, on it? Yeah. To travel. Um, <laughs> so I didn't know if we were supposed to assume that that means he would use the power or if that means like a specific thing. Because like there's been mm. a billion different ways that they're traveling at this point. Like the rocks yeah. and the... They mentioned flying at one point yep, and then yep. the the ways so i wasn't sure yeah i think it is a reference it's a it's a it's a foreshadowing uh of like a of something that they figure out later on um but i think that i, I think like it's they supposed to yeah yeah they have to have straight up teleportation because i feel like these characters are, there's some like selena are just jumping back and forth mm. and it's like hard to yeah, imagine either they, they either have like an immediate way gate access or alternate dimension access or they're hopping like around like teleporting it just seems yeah. too convenient I'll, I'll be pressed to accept an explanation that's not just straight up like teleportation yeah we know we know selene landfear in particular is is a fan of the stones because that was the first place we met her was in one of the woods between worlds where she was like set up her little i'm, I'm being attacked by a bear monster with the girl yeah but are they all over the white saver um, yeah the white palace or whatever was it called the white tower i think it's out, outside of tarvalin um or no or is that a way no there's a way gate in tarvalin i don't know if there are the guiding stones outside it because these are two separate things in the books well and they they, like whenever they talk about the stones it seems like if you're aware of any of them you're aware of one but not where the locations are of other ones so there could Mm. be fucking infinite at this point yeah yeah even if they're infinite though you can't the way they're right jordan writes it it's like she's like hopping in and out of the rooms or like hallways and corridors it's like you can't be it takes like a minute to channel the way it can't just be like hopping through those in a moment's notice like either that or it's like some kind of like cloak of invisibility or like masking their presence somehow also i think the waygates are always tied to an ogier grove of some sort either one that was uh, like yeah. a setting so like one that was there or is currently there uh and the portal stones i think are just like scattered throughout um like the continent 
Right, because they're much, much older, like pre-Age of Legends things. Yeah. Uh, so, whereas the 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 Ogier steadings that that conveniently it's like most of the big ancient cities of the world that someone might need to get to. Uh, That's a not- good point for the TV show, though. What is Moraine doing when they teleport to? Um, there's like that sequence in the house where they open like, or not the house, uh, Moraine's bedroom in the White Tower where they open oh, yeah, up yeah. a little like portal the thing. The Tierangriol painting, yeah. Yeah, so that painting is like another, is that another form of teleportation or an interpretation of like the stones or something? Like, is that introduced in the books or is that a oh, yeah, I couldn't, made up for I the show? I couldn't say my theory at the time um, in, in the show because we hadn't, we hadn't learned about it yet, but... I think that painting takes you into a, a place in Teleron Riyadh, the world of dreams, um, that, that scene that she has with Swan Sanche. That was what I thought when we watched the show, but what we hadn't had, we hadn't learned anything about the dream world at that point. So I didn't want to give that theory, but I think that's what it is. I think it's one that allows you to walk into a particular place physically. That's like an echo of the real world. Um, maybe a little bit out of time sync, kind of like the hmm. season of stranger things, although less horrifying and intrinsically. The upside down. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but also, doesn't she, I think she walked, or yeah, I, I guess that would make sense. I was going to say, I think Swan met her there, but if I recall the scene, I yeah. think Swan was already there. So They she both, must, they both so. have one, right? Like uh, the other half of the Terran Griol painting, painting or whatever thing. it is, yeah. Uh, is that what it is? Yeah. I think so. I wonder if they'll ever explain it. <laughs> I oh, mean, I the show could the easily movie. just add things in and not bother to explain the concepts behind them. They're just like, new me- mechanism made for the show we're not going to explain how this works yeah conveniently when you have the conceit of magical artifacts that do all sorts of things people don't fully understand or know how they work you can you can introduce them to do whatever you need them to for the plot which can be fun to discover or you can give hints about some of them like the ones that Egwene was cataloging and sort of know what they do my my one last detail i liked that was a non-supernatural thing that i thought was made up fantasy stuff as a kid was the spit dog uh, at the end trotting on his big wicker wheel, turning along spit with a haunch of lamb. So this dog is like on a big hamster wheel, uh, turning the, the meat around the fire at the inn. thought this was made up as a kid, but now we have Wikipedia to tell me that no, this was a real species of dog that was omnipresent throughout medieval Europe, no longer exists. That was just like, people had spit dogs around their house as the engine for, ro- like for the rotisserie chicken machines for... <laughs> For the dog to just turn for hour for you know however long on end while cooking the food, which is great. I love the spit dog. I want to know its name, um, and uh, yeah, that that is a detail that doesn't matter to anything. But I thought it was fun. I know. I'm just imagining like a like a chicken turnstile with my dog in it, just like <laughs> yeah. running after this piece of meat and like turning it while he runs after yep. it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, next time we'll be jumping into chapters 36 to 40 of The Dragon Reborn, which is getting us fairly far along in things here. I can't remember if this is another 50 chapter one, a little more. We got 56 chapters in this one. So we're moving into, I think it'll be close to the last third of the book or maybe getting close to the last act of things. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Dan, where can people find you on the internet? On Twitter and Instagram under the handle Pansy Dan. Keely, where can people find you? On Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore reads. Nick, where do you see yourself in five years? I see myself in Ebudar, uh, which I know we haven't gotten to yet, but uh, I think that's the city that I relate to the most in these book series. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Okay, looking forward to getting there then. We'll, we'll, uh, I can't remember when we do. Uh, remember, though, you can find us all at Wattcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast to get alerts whenever the new episodes go up, and you can support us at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. 
And of course, you can also support us by not giving us any money if you don't have any, but the five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This helps a lot. Number two way we find new listeners. The algorithm really bumps us up when you, when you leave a comment along with your five-star review. But the number one way, of course, that we find new listeners is if you tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. spoiled myself on something no stop <laughs> i was trying to look up i shouldn't have i tried to look up who a character is that they named a couple times i was like is he someone i should have known don't and google anything out, no, i know i shouldn't just, have known that us. i totally did that once uh i did that once with with swan and i got like a major major oh. spoiler very early on and i was like oh, Fuck. that's some of like the biggest intrigue too I, I did that with um, uh, what's her face, Leandrin. Book one, oh, yeah. I looked her up for something, and it was like, <laughs> oh, oh I did too. Black Aja Leandrin. Yeah. I was like, God fucking damn it! <laughs> but if that was not the most obvious, like, <laughs> like if there was anyone that was going to be black, oh, true, yeah, yeah. The, the most despicable I said, I, like the yeah. red is pretty much the Slytherin. It's like, oh, a Slytherin is helping yeah, the Death yeah. Eaters. Shocking. <laughs> there needs it's, to be like, I always thought there needs to be like a wiki that's like based. You can look at things based on how far you've got in the book. So like. When you look uh, up, it like it like covers everything, and then it just has like sections that's like book four. You can look up to here, like whatever. That is a real Nick. This is like a really good seed idea here. Yeah, uh, we're I'm asking a lot of the fan base though. <laughs> like, wikis are already <laughs> generous enough for people to like <laughs> compile these articles for us and tag them. But now we're asking them to tag them all with like filters so that we can show where we're at in the book series. <laughs> but but if you just if it's, it's just awesome. like. If it's just a tag with the book number, like for a Wheel of Time thing, you could you could see like, oh, okay, well now like we're it's a wiki article, so we're chronologically describing the characters back around. You just as you go, you're like increasing the yeah. tag number for each yeah. paragraph, right? Um, it would be extra. You'd work, have to build new but... profiles though, because like the they usually have like a deceased status or like oh, right. age, <laughs> or so you'd have to pretty much re rewrite oh. or have multiple in variations of the profile based off how far along you are. They'd have to oh, do that God. times. This is a UX yeah. designer. I think about these, like the logic steps for that. You're, yep. You'd already have to have like 20 states for each article. No, you <laughs> so could just, you could creating, just hide like, everything, right? Just hide yeah, everything yeah. and then just have like a, a mouse over for like, sh sh can show this through chapters, whatever. 
And even like the deceased born stuff, you could have yeah. a, a mouse over that just it's says like, what like, chapter. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's like, like spoiler inherently reveal. a spoiler. Yeah. That could work. Um, I mean, it's still a lot more work for these like people that aren't getting paid <laughs> to put together a wiki in the first place. Yeah, of course. Let's, of course. Uh, let's reach out. Wiki contributors are the people who uh, spent 30 years building the entire Wikipedia canon only for Disney Sorry, to say guys. none of this counts anymore. And now there Sorry. are two, two parallel running versions of every article on Wikipedia for less. <laughs> that like, is true. Here, here's the character in this timeline and here's them in the current timeline. And then here's the one that Disney's already changed again from this timeline. And just like every iteration, here's the Gendy Tartakovsky canon for the, for the, the cartoon network animated series that also changes everything. It's just, uh, I Wait, feel I like this what you're is talking about. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So well, Long yeah, there's always a legacy and like yeah. a canon because Disney decided to X the expanded universe canon that had so many. I collected them as a kid because I was obsessed and we had the book <laughs> series, but there's so many in literal encyclopedia published encyclopedias for Star Wars with all the information from the expanded universe, which included uh -huh. books, comics, TV shows, video specials, games. like video games, like cereal boxes, whatever. Any like piece of that was created into this expanded timeline and Disney came in as like, screw that. This is all not canon anymore. So the poor Wookiee, like Wikipedia had to like break everything up and now there's like a filter at the top so you can toggle between legacy and canon. Oh my god. That's rough. And Disney is oh no canon. Yeah. It's and then so the, much content. But there's also the stuff that's in neither, which is of what I was referring to, like the Tartatovsky canon for the Cartoon Network Clone Wars series and the different game canons that were already like non-canonic before and then there were already like legends comics that were alternate timelines and there are articles on wikipedia that are like a six layer mess of this character there are six different versions of this character <laughs> and doing basically the thing that that nick is proposing a more streamlined version of for that's true yeah for like chron chronology and like where you are in, in reading these but yeah comic it's, it, books it's are that wild. messed up too though because they have like at this point both dc and marvel have universes even before the tv like the movies yeah. introduced this they each each universe had like a three digit label and it had like their own canon for like whatever mm -hmm. universe that was. And there's like so many of those and they usually try to house a series within a specific universe or create a new one. So those wiki those uh, wikis have to be sectioned off by like which universe canon you're going by. And sometimes they yep. overlap and sometimes they're not. <laughs> so it's like it's crazy. Fans are dedicated. I've like barely I haven't read any sorry, I was gonna say, have you read any of the fan fiction for Wheel of Time? I, I haven't read any. Only a webcomic that was running from the late like nineties mm. through through early two thousands using altered sprites from Mega Man X. That's the only wheel of time. I think there could be some really good fan fiction in this world. Have you read any, Nick? No, I haven't. But I really I almost like got into like a fan fiction binge um in Wheel of Time and then you guys invited me to do the podcast. TV series instead, which fulfilled my, sated my like Wheel of Time <laughs> desire. But I almost went down that rabbit hole. The, nice. se the 72 best Wheel of Time fanfics. Okay, here we go. Oh, uh, <laughs> going to end up finding like fucking loyal Rule 34 bullshit. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, there, there's no doubt in my mind. I got I to gotta get running. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, All right. See you guys. <laughs> Bye. Later. This one says Brandon Sanderson wrote some pretty good fan fiction. Burn. Damn. <laughs> Somebody didn't like the ending. I thought he did. I thought he did a good job. I thought he did a great job, too. It was a different style, but I thought he did a good job. Yeah. Well, I'm, we'll see, right. uh, see when we get to it. <laughs> Later, see Nick. You